All right, well, good evening. Good to see you guys. Good to be with you. You are a blessed group to be able to gather like this and uh, just be with one another that love Jesus and want to grow in him. We're gonna be talking about growth tonight. and We've got this great group of faithful servants willing to uh, pour in as much as all of you are willing to take. So it's a great opportunity and I'm, I'm blessed. I feel very privileged to be here with you guys tonight. Um, actually, I've been asked to come previously and didn't make it, so I felt like I really needed to come tonight. So let's, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer one more time and then we'll get into the word in 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you once again for this night, for your faithfulness, your commitment, Lord, to finish the good work you've begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, it's so good to know that we're in your hands and that completed work is not resting entirely on our shoulders, Lord, but you carry it and you will bring it to completion. So Lord, as we get into your word tonight, show us what our part might be as we walk with you and respond to you and cooperate with the work of your spirit in our life. Be glorified and may we as your people be edified. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm not sure. I think usually you guys do questions in the beginning, right? So we're doing that at the end, in case you're wondering where are the questions. We're going to get to that at the very end. But if you haven't already, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to jump in at verse 18. And just to kind of give you the context of where we're coming in, this is Peter's second epistle. It's the last, kind of his final words in this letter. And I think that's important to, to note because this is the, the, the sort of the last thoughts that he wants to leave his readers with. And many times, you know, these were also Peter's later years uh, near to his death, a man's last words and the last thoughts you want to leave with somebody are always very significant. And what comes right before this is Peter's uh, breakdown of what to expect in the last days. And he talks about how the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, right? And he says that all the heavens and everything that has been made in them, verses 10 through 17 there, he says that these things will all the elements will melt with fervent heat. It's almost like the reverse Big Bang, right? God spoke the world and the universe into existence and there was a great explosion of matter. And he says that in the last days when the Lord, the day of the Lord comes, this will reverse, everything will dissolve. But that God would establish a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And we long for that time, don't we? And I've never been more disillusioned with the world than I am now, but... He also says, knowing these things, knowing that the passing of all that we see and can touch will happen and that there is this coming kingdom. He says, how ought we to live then knowing this? And so he gives us sort of a contrast between the believer and the unbeliever and how we ought to live even through these last days, moving forward, pressing on, growing upward with constant movement forward versus the stagnation of the world 
or the reverse ways of the world. So that's where we're going to come in. Verse 18, let's read it. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. But grow. So the first thing we kind of understand as we look at this is growth is a contrast to what he's just said. He says, prior to this verse, you know, to beware lest we kind of fall from our steadfastness in verse 17. And depending on the the Bible that you're using, uh, steadfastness has the idea of conviction, certainty of mind, stability. It's kind of like your footing, right? I wear these zero drop shoes because I had a head injury some years back and I have vertigo as a result. So zero drop shoes help me feel the ground better, helps my balance. And, um, you know, footing is very important. So he's talking about this in the sense of being where that we, we don't in stagnation fall behind. Because listen, if we're not pushing forward and growing in a world that is going in the opposite direction, it's a matter of time until we start going in that same direction with it. So he's instructing us as a contrast for our, con, our conduct, right? Listen, avoid the ways of the world, that's the negative side, but pursue the ways of the Lord. And so this is how we actively wait for the return of the Lord. We're not waiting without any activity, right? We're not entirely passive. You guys are here tonight kind of pursuing that positive side of it, right? The Bible doesn't give us a list of everything we are to avoid. That would definitely be a drag. Instead, scriptures give us exhortations of those things to set our minds on those things to pursue. And when there's something that we're told to avoid, it's because that might be human nature, but the Bible never stops there. God always tells us, don't worry about that as much. If you just focus on what we are to pursue, you're going to be fine. You're not going to have to worry about the negative, pursue the positive. And so this is a, a, a conduct exhortation, but it's also an alternative to that, that stagnation, right? That we will be firm in our conviction. And Peter says, this is how we mitigate what would be you know, a loss of our stable footing. And I can understand the danger of this. You may be sitting here thinking, man, there's never a time when I'm gonna have that experience where I'll lose my steadfastness I'll lose my firmness of conviction. None of us think that. But if the scriptures exhort us in this, there's a reason why. And I can tell you personally that I have been there where I have lost my firm footing. I remember when I was in seminary years ago, I I had done that, uh, a bachelor's in theology program when I was pastoring in Italy and um, seminary exposes you to a lot of things and it's, it's necessary, it's a good thing, but you know, seminary is not for everybody. And I would say that if you're considering even doing seminary, that you would first make sure you have good experience in your walk with Christ first, that you know what you believe and why you believe it because you will be exposed to things and have to work through ideas that will challenge your convictions very much. And if you're not mature in, in, in your walk with the Lord, it can destabilize you a little bit. And I tend to be a person that goes down rabbit trails and rabbit holes 
pretty easily. I, I have a very inquisitive mind and I can go there quickly. And I remember getting into a lot of the atheists, um, you know, the four horsemen, it was Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, um, it was a third guy, I can't remember him now. Of course, Hawkins, but there's a fourth, Daniel, De- Daniel Dennett or something like that. And I remember reading all their materials and I was buying their books. I got into, you know, the, geni- the ge- uh, genetics of evolution and I was spending no time in the Word because I was reading all this other stuff and I started trying to work through my mind. Well, what if, could this possibly be true and the scriptures be true also? And I was beginning to lose my firm footing. I was not growing and pushing forward. So I was becoming stagnant because I had stopped pursuing what was necessary for me. And I began to instead have a steady diet of things that were not helpful. Now, it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for that. But I was not being aware of what was going on with my heart and my soul. The second thing that Peter means by this, and that we want to take note, is that this is actually a command. This word, grow, is in what we call the imperative form. I know what you guys, you guys have heard of imperatives. An imperative is when, it's not, I'm not saying, hey, this is a good thing, um, would you consider this? No, I'm telling you, you do, do this, you need to do this. Having teenagers, I use imperatives a lot at home. Clean up after yourself, put away your shoes, you know, whatever it is. Stop leaving a mess in the kitchen. So there's, this is an imperative, it's a command, but the command means literally continue to increase. He's saying, brothers and sisters, you know, in contrast to the loss of steadfastness, continue to increase. And here's the thing about this command. It's very unusual to command something to grow. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever, I mean, so we know some of you guys have kids, right? Could you imagine telling your kids, grow? And we may say things like grow up, but what we really mean is stop acting childish and act mature, but to actually tell something to grow. That's a different kind of command, right? Could you imagine if you could do that? If you walk out in your backyard and you go up to your garden, if you have a garden and you talk to your carrots and you say, grow, and they grow. Wouldn't that be great if that is how gardening was done instead of by the sweat of our brow? So what's interesting is I'm thinking as I read that about the creation account, when God called forth growth from the earth, right? By his word, he commanded life to come out of the ground and all the grass and the the shrubs and vegetables and fruit trees, all of these things came forth at the command of his word. And so in a sense, God again, by his word through Peter is commanding growth to come forth in our life. But what's different about this command is that there's a cooperation. We're gonna see that in a minute, that this is something while unusual, And while only God can command growth by his word and cause it to happen, and yes, he will supply what is needed for that to happen, right? The power of his word, and we're in the the written word of God tonight. But there is an expectation given for us that we are to make growth a priority. And as unusual as this is, we don't normally speak like this and say to something grow. There is a part on our side 
that cooperates with what God enables by the command of his word. So as he commands us to grow, there is another side to this that we want to look at. And first, growth is a byproduct, right? So as God has infused every living thing with what I would consider sort of uh, a self-propelled ability to grow, there is more to that. Uh, When something is alive, it is always doing what, so there's this innate um, by design ability to to grow. You look at kids, as long as they're eating, they're going to grow. They don't have to concentrate on that. Parents go through a lot of money buying kids shoes every six months to a year, right? I remember doing this. And sometimes I wish that they wouldn't grow so fast. And now they're all grown up as older teenagers. And I'm sad that those days of their, you know, younger years are past, but I can't take credit for their growth other than putting food on the table for them. I didn't make them grow, right? That's something that happens because God has built it into us. And what God has done in you and me tonight, brothers and sisters, is he has built into us the ability and the the propensity to grow. Now you are uh, sort of partnering with God tonight by just being here. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but here's the thing about growth. Even though it's a byproduct of life by God's design, sometimes we take it for granted. That is, we take it for granted until there's a problem that either stops the growth, something that gets our attention. So God has done all of this, and we just recently moved to Howell uh, back in um, February, I think it was, and we, we moved into a house that was in bad shape. The only reason we got the house is because no one else wanted it. This was during the time when everyone was moving in from New York and different parts, you know, I don't know where they were coming from, but they were buying houses like you would not believe. And we couldn't compete. So we found this house. We believe God preserved it for us. He just kept it for us. But man, it was a lot of work. It was a redemption story. The house was kind of like my life, right? The way God you know, stepped into my life and he rebuilt this mess of a life that mine was. But in the front yard of my house was this big, what used to be a beautiful ash tree. And because of the time of the year, I couldn't tell if it was alive or not. Um, Because of where it was and the size of it, I was a little concerned that some bad storms might take it down. And if it came down, it was going to come down on my house. That was the last thing I wanted. So we waited and spring came and all our neighbor's trees were budding. They were looking really beautiful. And my tree looked like a, like a haunted house movie. You know, those scary looking skeletal trees, you know, with nothing, no life on it. Big, intimidating. Uh, it was there, but there was nothing going on inside. No buds. All it kept doing was dropping these, these big limbs and little branches into my gutters I was constantly having to pick up, you know, sticks and branches on my grass so I could cut the grass. That's what you do when you buy a house. Beware. Get ready to cut grass and do all that yard work. So I had to make a decision. And we had the tree removed because I thought, you know what? This thing's going to come down with a bad storm. So this is kind of the idea that Peter is giving us with this exhortation, right? Right? You take things for granted until things start falling apart. 
limbs start dropping. And this is, Peter wants us to avoid that. Make sure that we are ready to weather the storms because we're pressing forward, right? God has built this into us, but there is a part that we have in this and that that is the partnership of growth. That's why God can command this. He will enable growth. He will give us what we need. Growth will happen by the work of his spirit. But as we were praying before tonight's meeting, we prayed that we would cooperate with the work of his spirit. And that's what's unique about growth as believers. The flip side is there are certain things required. Even though God has designed growth, there are certain things required to make this happen, right? Going back to the gardening example, if you um, have a garden, then you know you need certain things for your, your garden to grow. You need nutrients in the soil, you need sunshine, you need water, and you need to keep the rabbits from eating whatever's growing there. And that sometimes is the biggest struggle. So the idea then is that we're to do and to seek those things that help facilitate growth in our lives, right? We have the water of the word. We're feeding in the, in the word. The word of God is like bread. It's water to our soul. We have the, the I would call it almost like, um, you know, the, the nutrients of, of the soil is, is getting together with, in fellowship with other believers. There's something that happens that's unique when we come together and we receive from, from one another. It's, it, it stimulates and it encourages growth. Now, when I was a missionary in Serbia, I think, um, you know, I didn't know this about sunflowers maybe because I was a high school dropout and uh, did not like education. But when I was over there, I learned something really fascinating. Where my wife is from in, in Serbia, it's the northeast section of Vojvodina. And uh, it's heavily uh, agricultural in that area. Uh, one of their main products is sunflower seeds and sunflower oil. And so it's really amazing. You would, you know, we would drive to um, do ministry in different different areas and Literally for miles and miles, just miles and miles, as far as your eye could see, there'd be all these square miles of sunflower fields certain times of the year. It was beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. We have pictures of it. And so when the sun would go down towards the end of the day, the sunflowers would droop, right? That, that beautiful sunflower head would droop. And these things would be as tall as me and taller. They're amazing. But as the sun would rise, they would set their faces towards the sun and they track the sun. That's why they're called sunflowers. It's really amazing. I love that picture for us because in, this, in a similar sense, even though God is causing them to grow, by design, he has called them to track the sun. And so we then, in a similar way, we set our faces to the sun, S-O-N, and we keep our eyes on him and we receive from him what we need. Now, this is where I get convicted because I don't always do what's necessary for my own growth. I just ran the Atlantic City Marathon last Sunday. Can't believe I did it. Always hated running with every ounce of my body. The only time I ran in my younger years was because I was in trouble. Somebody was chasing me to hurt me or the police were chasing me to arrest me and I would run. 
Now I run voluntarily. I don't understand it. Something happened when I turned 50 a few years ago, and uh, now I love running. So I decided to run a marathon. Let me tell you the amount of work that goes into getting ready for a marathon. This isn't something you just show up and do, right? 26.2 miles is a long way. And so I was in this training program, and my wife was constantly reminding me. She's, God speaks to me through my wife often. She was constantly reminding me of how much I'm out of the house because some of my runs would be three, four hours long. I'm running five, six, sometimes seven days a week. And every day there would be a specific kind of run. You know, this run would be 400 meter repeats or 800 meter repeats where I'd have to go and do these hill sprints up a hill and I'd have to repeat them a certain amount of times. And every day had a specific purpose there's a certain kind of diet. There's a certain amount of time you need to rest. You need to be hydrating. And there's all these things that you're doing. And along the way, as you go through the, the training, you're checking your progress, right? You're looking at what's my heart rate during that run? Is my heart rate, is it getting easier for my heart to keep up? And you are basically looking at the metrics and you, and you know where you need to be on race day in order to do the 26 miles in a certain time. And so you're doing your training, you're analyzing the metrics, getting an idea of where you are, and you're looking at where you need to be to accomplish your goal. Now, I, I, I remember being out for a long run one day, and I felt like I heard the Lord just quietly say to me, you know, if only you put this kind of energy and focus into uh, being more like Jesus, you know, because that's ultimately like we're all in this race together, right? Paul likens this to it's a walk, but he also calls it a race. And we want to finish the race. Well, well, what is the race? Like, what is the end goal for you and for me in this life? The end goal is to be more like Jesus. And so am I then doing the things that I know I need to do every day and kind of checking in with myself to see how am I doing and how am I progressing towards that goal of being like Christ? And when the Lord said that to me, I just had to say, forgive me because I haven't put the energy or the time or the thought to that magnitude ever. I mean, could you imagine four hours a day just, I mean, we do that if we're studying, you know, in, in our degree programs and things like that, but Day-to-day, -day, in a normal circumstance, we're not doing that. And so this is where the partnership really comes in because Paul says in Romans 8, 29, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. If we're not moving forward in that direction, friends, that we're soon going to be moving backwards. It doesn't take long. So then if we are to grow, what are we to grow or increase in? And how do we measure that progress? Well, this is what comes next. Grace, Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So grace is first in priority and in necessity. And I want you to think for a minute why that might be. In fact, let me just ask you that question and see if you guys have any thoughts. I'm used, to, I'm used to teaching in Bible college classes, and so we have a lot of interaction. Any thoughts on why grace is first? 
Don't be, don't be worried about giving a bad answer. Why is grace first? Why does he say growing in knowledge and then growing grace? Did you have your hand up? All right, awesome. Absolutely. Without grace, we cannot have a relationship with Christ, right? So that's where it starts. But how do, why, why is it so important to continue to grow in grace before we think of growing in, in knowledge? Any other thoughts on that? Yes. Beautiful. All right, awesome. Yeah, see, to know... Christ is to know his grace, right? That's what we know first. That's what our sister just told us here. And we are impacted by his grace, right? That's the very first thing we experience. I didn't know anything about Jesus when he first touched my life and brought me to himself. But what I experienced was his grace and I I couldn't articulate it, but that's what I first experienced. Now, we know the meaning of grace because we've been around Calvary Chapel for a while. Grace is God's unmerited favor, typically speaking, in the scriptures, right? We're not talking about the grace of Olympic ice skaters and how beautiful they are when they skate. We're talking about this unmerited favor of God. And as we think of grace, we want to make a passing mention at least of uh, God's mercy because it's the flip side of this coin. If grace is God's unmerited favor, in other words, we, we have this position with him, we have his disposition of favor towards us without ever doing anything to earn it. Getting what we don't deserve, his favor. Mercy, we say, is not getting what we do, what we do deserve, which is what? Judgment, right? We deserve judgment. We can all admit that we deserve that, but we don't get that. So grace is is God's unmerited favor. But when we think about how how do we grow in that? I mean, we don't, if we didn't merit his favor to begin with, how do we grow in more of his unmerited favor? So we can't be talking about that kind of grace, right? There's a certain sort of substance to grace that we're gonna look at here that really is is the main idea of what we need to grow in. Because as... Someone just said, I don't know the names of you guys yet. We can grow in knowledge, but without grace, it doesn't produce the fruit, right? See, there's something unique and special about grace that is palpable. It's, it's, it's tangible. Anyone can grow in knowledge. We can all learn facts. But to grow in grace is something unique. It's to be more like Christ, I use food illustrations all the time because number one, I'm Italian. Number two, I lived there for a lot of years and food is everything to the Italian people, let me tell you. If you're hungry, forgive me. You guys can eat when we're done. But I I, I remember how seriously the Italian people take their salads, their olive oil, right? Uh, They're also big on balsamic vinegar and they make the best balsamic vinegars in the world, typically from... Uh, Modena, it's a certain area in the Northeast near where I lived, the best balsamic vinegars in the world, but you have to have good extra virgin olive oil with the salad. If you just put vinegar on it, it's an abomination to them. They really get upset. Do we have Italians here who understand what I'm talking about? You got what I'm saying, right? All right. So 
knowledge is kind of like, in, the way I imagine it is like the balsamic vinegar, right? Grace is like the extra virgin olive oil because what the olive oil does is it takes that, that vinegar, that flavor, and it, it tapers, it smooths it out, and it kind of spreads it throughout the salad, and it makes the salad uh, that much better. So grace is very much like an ingredient in a way, right? Grace influences knowledge and it gives it life. In fact, there are many places in scripture where grace is likened to a, a seasoning. Remember where Paul says, uh, let your speech be seasoned with grace, right? He says, he says let your, your speech be seasoned that it, you may impart grace to the hearer. So grace is something flavorful. Anything plus grace just becomes better. And so let it season our conduct. This is the kind of grace that Peter's talking about. When we grow in grace, we're growing in a, a trait of God that even when somebody else doesn't deserve our favor. Our disposition is very much like Christ where they still have grace from us. They still receive grace. And grace, my friends, is one of the most beautiful words in the scriptures because it is by grace that you and I are here tonight. So grace is then a quality, right? In the context of this phrase and in this book, Grace is being used as a noun to, it's functioning like an adjective, even though it's a noun, to describe a quality of conduct. And I think I would say that the loveliest display of grace is what? Where, what is the best display or the best um, example of grace we could have? Brother. The cross, okay, and so that's an action, but who performed it? All right, so the best display of grace we could possibly have is Jesus. He was and is the embodiment of grace, isn't he? And do you remember what John said of, of Jesus in chapter one? Let's turn there for a minute. Gospel of John, chapter one. This is what people were drawn to in Jesus. Yes, he was brilliant, make no mistake about it. Nobody could debate Jesus and win. Jesus always left them at a loss for words. They could never trap him. He was brilliant. But it wasn't knowledge merely that people were drawn to with Jesus. They were drawn to him because of his grace. That is what separated him from the religious leaders, isn't it? The way he was with the lost and the outcasts of society I am someone who can relate to those outcasts. That is where Jesus met me when I was very lost, very outcast, and very unwelcome, even in some churches. And you know, before I came to Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge, um, the Lord was working in my heart. He was stirring in me. I was in the music industry. We had come to a place of great success, a couple of opportunities with some big record labels, and I couldn't do it. I left because I was just, it was the lifestyle was killing me and I knew I couldn't have peace. And so I began to look for a church because God was drawing me to himself and I just wanted to know what the Bible said. And so I'd visit these churches, but I looked kind of radical. 
I had a lot of hardware in my face, nine earrings, a nose ring. I had my head shaved different ways with long braids in, in the areas where I had hair. And I'd walk in dressed like a ninja with all of that going on and pink socks and pink, shirt, pink undershirts because I had ruined my, my, my laundry washing my whites with a red shirt. So I had this perfect pink tone and I had no money to change my wardrobe, so I just kept wearing it. People were like, that's a really weird style. Why are you doing that? Well, anyway, I'd go to a church and I'd walk in and I'd sit down and people would be visibly uncomfortable with my presence and they would kind of scoot away from me in the pews. And I could just sense, I'm not welcome here. I don't, I don't look the part. I'm a, I'm a soul seeking truth and I want to know God, but there was no grace for me. They didn't meet me where I was as Jesus was meeting me where I was. And this was my experience in several churches and I had a friend in the industry who said, come to Calvary Chapel. You know, you'll, you'll meet other people like you who are musicians and you'll feel at home. And I remember walking in that first day and I was greeted by this big guy named Nick Sigarenko. He was a big Russian guy with a little bit of an accent. And he's like, welcome. And he gave me this, you know, bulletin. And he looked me straight in the eye. He didn't see any of the hardware. He didn't care. I even had my beard braided which now that's kind of commonplace, but back then it shocked people. And I thought, man, this guy's just happy that I'm here today. This is really amazing. And then I came in and I saw other people crazy looking like me and I'm like, I have found my people, I'm home. And then the worship drew me in and I saw people worshiping God and the word of God opened and God spoke to me in such an incredible way. I think Lloyd was teaching in Romans at the time and Romans is a book full of grace. And God met me with a message of grace and I thought, there's hope for me. And I was forever changed by that. That was the first day, that was a, the beginning of new beginnings for me. But look, if you're there in John chapter one, verse 14, he says, let me flip over there now, of course. He says, full of grace and truth, and then jump down to verse 16. He says, we have received of his fullness grace for grace. This is what was emanating from Jesus, and John was so impressed, he had to write about it. He says, this is, Jesus is not just full of truth, which is a good example of knowledge, but he's full of grace, and we have received from his fullness grace for grace. This is what Jesus was so known for. This is why anyone could be around him. So then God's command to us tonight, back in 2 Peter, to grow in grace is to grow in this kind of Christ-likeness, right? And so as we grow spiritually, there is more grace yielded. You see, when I look around this room, I can't see knowledge coming out of you guys just by looking at you. When you interact afterwards and you're fellowshipping, I can't see knowledge. I could see knowledge if I gave you a written test and then I looked at your answers. But grace is something I can see. I can see grace at work in your life and how you respond one to another. That is the characteristic of God's work in us. Knowledge is often noisy. It likes to 
express itself, but grace is always palpable. And God will continue to give us opportunities to respond in grace in this unmerited favor with one another, in our relationships with our spouses, if you guys are about to get married, maybe some of you. When the kids come along, you know, when you look at kids, I mean, really, kids are just more sinners in the house, right? And the more kids we have, the more opportunity for sin there is, the more opportunity to respond in grace. And that grows exponentially as they get older. Little kids, little sin, little problems, bigger kids, bigger problems. I have opportunity all the time to respond to my kids in grace as teenagers. And I, I, I sometimes I fail and I'm always so, so broken when I do and I apologize to them and I confess because listen, what I want them to see in me more than anything else is the grace of God. And if I'm going to be that example for them of the heart of God, the, the, the character of God, it needs to be grace. It doesn't mean that I don't discipline them. It doesn't mean there's never consequences. It just means my disposition is one that uh, demonstrates grace. Now, how many of you guys have ever been through Lakewood? Is that an opportunity for grace or what? My goodness, man, every time I go through that area, I don't always have grace as a response, but I always have the opportunity for grace when I go through that area. So then grace as a concept, it's very simple, right? But it's contrary to, to human nature, isn't it? Because we're programmed, all of life is a rewards-based system. Do this and everything will be good. Don't do this and there are consequences. We just changed our insurance company trying to save a little bit of, of our, on our bills every month and we moved over to... Uh, uh, progressive, and they said they had this thing, this program they called Snapshot. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that, but they give you this device and you plug it in under your dashboard and it tracks how you're driving. It's kind of creepy, but if you're aggressive with your driving, if you accelerate too fast or you're frequently braking really hard, really fast, they're assuming that you're driving recklessly and you pay a higher premium. Now, I'm a little worried with my wife because she has one in her car. And she's a zippy little Serbian driver. And uh, she likes to get where she's going quickly. So I might be paying a higher premium, but I'm hoping that I can balance it out with my truck and how I drive. But anyway, this is how it works. And so they're like, you know, you just have to know that if you drive well, well, then you'll pay less. And if you don't, well, then you'll pay more. So it's a rewards system. This is how the world works and this is what human nature is. So it goes against our nature, but yet this is what God is saying. Hey, grow in this. Grow in this thing that's contrary to the world. And to do that, my friends, let me tell you, I really firmly believe that we have to embrace grace for ourselves. If you're anything like me, you have struggled at some point or another with the idea that you could have God's favor knowing full well that you don't deserve it because you are very aware of every wicked thought you've had, of everything that you've done that hasn't been Christ-like, every word you've spoken. You know what you do behind closed doors when no one is watching. But listen, 
this was my struggle for probably a good four, maybe five years after I came to Christ. I continually had to grow in this and embrace grace for myself and stand firm on the proclamation of the gospel that it is by grace we are saved through faith. Once you can do that, once you can appropriate grace for yourself and really receive it and thank God for his grace, when you can do that, you have understood grace. And it is at that point that you can then begin to be gracious to others. Listen, if we're failing to be gracious with others, we're probably not fully aware of the grace of God for you and for me. Now I love being big on grace because I have been forgiven much, right? As Jesus said, he was forgiven much, loves much. I am aware of the depths from which God has brought me. And so I love grace. I love the word. I love what it is. I love what it has done in my life. And I love being gracious with others. I'm so sorry when I fail in that because it's when we're gracious that we are most like Jesus. Well, now we get to the end. And he says, knowledge. This is the final part of our command from Peter tonight, which is ultimately a command from God to grow. Knowledge is a second priority, right? Second in, in line of, of, I would say, priority. But although it's second, it's still essential, right? It's still essential for us to grow in knowledge, you can't really grow in grace and continue to grow in grace if we're not also growing in our knowledge of Jesus. So this is obviously important. This is why we give precedence to the study of the scriptures. That's why every Sunday, we're not about feeling good. We're about getting into what the Bible says. We have to get to know what the Bible says. And if we, if we know better who Jesus is, well, then we can also grow in grace. So these go hand in hand, but it starts with grace. Now, because knowledge is essential, a big part of knowledge is church and the church life, the church experience. It's what we're doing tonight. Church is essential to knowledge. You and I, yes, we can grow independently of one another, but it's very, it's sort of a, um, a stunted growth. When we come together and we begin to interact with one another, sharing ideas with one another, challenging one another, working through different ideas together, maybe coming from very different positions on things and learning to do that in grace and in love, we grow because we impart truth to one another. It's not just about challenging one another to stay the course. It's about actually speaking truth to one another. And when you speak truth into my life, I'm not the only one that grows. Do you know that you grow when you speak truth into someone else's life too? As you speak it into someone else's life, you are reminding yourself of the very thing that you're saying. And you begin to grow more as a result. So drawing near to Jesus in worship as we did tonight, hearing from the word of God, these are all things we give precedence to it in, in church. It's why we do what we do. We we don't do it for any other reason. It's so that we can continue to grow. But there's a unique aspect of the gathering of the saints. 
where I can learn and be encouraged from your walk with Jesus, your testimony that's different than mine, but the grace is the same. It's the same grace that works in everybody. It's the same Jesus that we learn of. But how he works in your life, it encourages me. The grace at work in your life inspires me. It motivates me. It builds me up. And so this is why we come away from a gathering like this different than we would if we just read the Bible on our own and we just worship Jesus on our own in our bedroom. Good things, but not the only things, not the best things. This is why the church gathers. And that is the name. That's what the meaning is. The church is the gathering. And I'm so blessed every time I get to gather with the believers. You know, just watching you guys worship tonight, I was thanking God for you. I was like, thank you, God, for this, this body of believers. At this age, in this time of life, when the world is gone, has gone crazy, you are staying the course. You're setting aside, aside time to gather on a Thursday evening to come and, and show your thanks and your love for Jesus in song and to take in the word and to fellowship together and challenge one another. That is awesome, guys. Please continue to do that. I'm gonna reiterate what Peter said. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Keep doing it. It's a partnership. And you're doing it. You're here tonight. You're doing it. So keep on keeping on, friends. You see, the Christian life is, we know this, it's, it's a relationship. Knowledge is relational. To know Jesus is personal. We're not learning simply facts about him. Jesus, when he said to learn of him, he said, come to me, right? He didn't say go to school and learn about me. That's fine. But you need to come to him and learn from him. So there's something very personal that happens learning from Jesus experientially. Not everything we learn is just simply from the text. We learn by walking with him, right? Getting before God, cultivating that discipline to make that happen. And Jesus, when he was praying for the disciples and everyone who would believe in him after them, in John 17, he said, this is eternal life. Do you remember what follows after that? That they, remember what he said? That they know you, the only true and living God, and him whom you have sent, meaning Jesus. He said, that's, each, that's how Jesus defined eternal life, knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. Isn't that amazing to think about? And there are other places in John 14 where Jesus talks about the experience we have as we walk with him in obedience. He says, listen, if you walk with me, if you obey me, you love me, you keep my word, he says, I will manifest myself to you. I will show myself to you in ways that can only happen experientially. And he even said, my father and I will come and move in with you. You'll have us as roommates. Now you get really close to somebody when you share an apartment together. That's when you really get to know them. So grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. This is a, just a beautiful evidence of new life 
in relationship with Jesus, it's a lot like, I've heard it said, riding a bicycle. Unless you're moving forward, you're going to fall off, right? You got to keep moving forward. There's a lot of things that are going to be grabbing at your heels to slow you down and eventually stop you. You need to keep pressing on, friends.